Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, a cry from the depths of hard drinking and hard living. We talk with Heather King, author of the new book, Holy Desperation, Praying as if Your Life Depends on It, about her journey and about the wisdom that she gained along the way. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're talking to Heather King. She's the author of the new book, Holy Desperation, which just came out from Loyola Press. Holy Desperation is about praying as if your life depends on it. And Heather King uh, reports that she's a Catholic convert and the author of several books, among them Parched, Redeemed, Shirt of Flame, Stumble, and Stripped. She writes a a weekly column on arts and culture for Angelus News, and she lives in Los Angeles, and she blogs at heather King. Dot com. Heather King, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I, I loved the book. Uh, I come from a 12-step background. I was very moved by the honest place that you wrote the book from. And one of the things that struck me as I was reading the book is about halfway through, uh, you talk about God as being like a, a being that is, that is very different from us, and that when we reach out to someone that's different from us, there's this moment of vulnerability when you're, you're getting to know someone and getting to, getting to establish a relationship with someone. And what I took your book to be, uh, just at the outset here, was a complete trusting act of vulnerability. And I just want to say at the beginning of the conversation how much I appreciated the authenticity of your voice, the honesty that you write from, and just the, 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 the place of, of trust and outreach that, that you wrote the book from. Thank you. Thank you. I, I like the idea of identify, don't compare. And I think when we um, say at the outset, Listen, I'm not writing from some spiritually evolved place above the rest of humanity. I'm with you. I'm broken and clueless and hungering and thirsting, just like you. And my life has taken or seemingly wrong turns at the time, which I think everyone's has sooner or later. So um, I think, um, yeah, I like the idea of invitation. I always say Christ is all invitation. Come and see. Um, but anyway, thank you so much. That makes me feel good that you experienced it that way. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar with your other works, it might make sense to take a few steps back and sort of talk about the journey that it took for you to get to working on this book. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you came from, and what your life was like uh, on the way towards uh, eventually writing this book. I grew up on the coast of New Hampshire, a very small town, and um, big family, eight kids in my family, Protestant, grew up across the street from the Congregational Church, little town common, and, um, and went to Sunday school 
didn't didn't wasn't anti God, but just didn't really see God as relevant to my life. That even as a child was was sort of existentially tormented, and you know, as a big deep thinker and would ponder. It was kind of had a little mystical sense. I mean, I always loved flowers and birds and and all of that. But also, my heart. I grew up in a home. My parents were not alcoholics, but we, our family was deeply affected by alcoholism. I'm sure going back generations, I have the disease. Lots of other people uh, in my family have the disease. And so even though we didn't have active alcoholism in the house, I think all the baggage from that that comes through kind of in your mother's milk, the shame, the guilt, the fear, the secrecy, the deep, deep sense of, of being inadequate and that you're not enough and that everyone else has the rule book. So I had all of that. Didn't hook it up with, oh, that's what God is for, to go to with that stuff. I thought God was kind of the high school principal. You stay, get straight A's and stay very, very far away because you do not want him to know what you're thinking. Or eventually, once I picked up a drink, really didn't want him to know what I was doing. And um, so I picked up, I, I was a good straight A student athletic, played the piano, had all the all the outside stuff in place uh, for, for, you know, sort of promising whatever, promising life. But I picked up a drink when I was 13. And, um, and it was the, the very first time I drank was sort of a false religious experience. I mean, it was absolutely cataclysmic, the way that alcohol made me feel. You, you, you talk about this in the book. You say that it was almost a mystical or a religious experience, and, and you talk about how, and you just said it again, just kind of how it, it filled a hole that you didn't know that you had that was longing for something divine, but this was, this was something that was filling that hole, but it wasn't the right thing to put in that hole. Is that a fair way to say Yes, it's well, and I knew, I knew the whole, I knew there was something lacking, or, or that I myself felt very, very inadequate in spite of the fact that I had this kind of outward accomplishment. So it's not that I was unaware. I knew that I felt different and sort of apart from, but alcohol for me was like medicine, like divine medicine that made me feel a part of, that made me feel united with my fellow man, with myself. And as I look back, I didn't have the religious language then. Absolutely. It was a transcendent, I mean, a fake transcendent experience. Um, it's like when, when Satan takes Christ out to the desert and says, turn these stones into bread. Real bread, the bread of life, the life, the love, the connection we long for, it takes time. It takes a willingness to be vulnerable. It takes a lot of stumbling and falling in the dark. It's not an instant things. And I think that uh, Christ being tempted is so relevant always. I mean, everything he did is relevant to our times, but that's what we try to do. Drugs, sex, shopping, gambling, all that stuff. We're trying to turn stones into bread. And that, that seemed to be what happened that first time. That's one way of thinking about it. Of course, I wasn't thinking in sort of gospel language at the time. And my drinking from that point on, I mean, I that the very first time that I drank, I sort of um, passed over. Uh, if there was an invisible line, I passed it, and uh, I blacked out the very first time I drank. Not a good sign. And the mental obsession and the craving, where when can I do it again, kicked in right away. Even though I had really bad, bad consequences the first time I drank, I couldn't remember what I had done. I got in trouble at home. I was deathly ill the next day. 
but what I re- what what compelled me was the feeling of being at one. And if you've ever experienced that, you will chase it into the gates of insanity or hell. That's why people die all the time of alcoholism. It's, it's to me anyway, just trying to recapture that first feeling. It never felt that good again, even though I drank for 20 years. One of the things that you talk about in your book is that our entire culture is trying to anesthetize itself, or the, the word that you use is narcotize itself. And you, you just said a litany of things. You, you talked about uh, drugs and alcohol, but you also mentioned shopping or the desire for status or the desire to be seen in the eyes of others as, as being something that we're not. Um, it seems to me that you've diagnosed not just a problem in yourself, but by, by looking with great honesty at yourself, you suddenly have seen that there's a lot of other people who are doing that same kind of running away or chasing after that thrill or trying to fill that hole. Right. And that's not, that's not a judgment because I'm right. <laughs> I'm right at the head of the pack or, or was or employees to be at any given time. And that's the human condition. It's not just our culture, but I think our culture, everything, because everything is so available so quickly. And because of the internet and now we have, we're signing up to commodify the human self as a marketing opportunity. Please put me in chains, keep me in bondage, and um, and I'm going to call it freedom. And that, to me, is what we have in our culture, this kind of bizarre, curated uh, online presence that we all know bears absolutely no resemblance to real life. And the sadness is there's an emptiness such an emptiness at the middle of it. That thing is an idol. It's a stone. It's not, it's not real bread. It's not real life. None of this is a judgment. It's, it's what I have myself experienced, that hideous, hideous emptiness of trying to make a God out of alcohol or of promiscuity in the, in the bars. Um, this is the good news. There is another way. There is a way, a truth, and a life but we have to really be so sick and tired of our change that we're willing to, I think, ask some deeper questions. I went to college. I ended up going to law school. I have lots of, you know, I have a fair amount of intelligence. I have lots and lots of willpower around everything except my addictions. And so I could go to school sort of in a blackout and, and, go in the wagon, quote unquote, and study really hard. And I did actually graduated near the top of my class, law school, like in the throes of acute alcoholism, passed the Massachusetts bar, but I could not stop drinking. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Heather King. She's a Catholic convert and the author of several books, including Stripped, Parched, Redeemed, Shirt of Flame, Poor Baby, and Stumble, Virtue, Vice, and the Space Between. She writes a weekly column on arts and culture for the Angelus Magazine of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. She lives in L.A. and blogs at heather-king.com. King writes with candor and with honesty about her many years as an alcoholic and drug addict. She also talks about her conversion to Catholicism and the ways in which prayer has become an important and central part of her life. You can find out more about King and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment.
Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Heather King about her new book, Holy Desperation, Praying as if Your Life Depends on It. King is a Catholic convert and the author of several other books, including Stripped, Parched, Redeemed, Shirt of Flame, and Stumble, Virtue and Vice and the Space Between. She writes a weekly column on arts and culture for the Angelus Magazine of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and she blogs at heather-king.com. When I hear you talking about God being uh, not the principle, God is not the, the one keeping score, it reminds me of my own walk to faith, and I, I think about a, a, a hymn that I heard years ago in the Episcopal Church. The first line of the hymn is, My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? And, and what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that, you know, when we think about uh, the, the kind of judgments that we cast on ourselves, the voices that we hear in our head are oftentimes human voices. They're voices of our mother, our father, they're voices of the people that have, that have criticized us, and they get amplified. But what I'm hearing you saying is that when you turned that corner and you began to recover, you heard a different voice. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? A, a divine voice that was a voice of forgiveness, not a voice of condemnation. Have I heard that right? Yes, I mean it wasn't an actual voice, of but course. certainly that was that was a sense. Yes, and I think there's nothing, and this is the, the parable of the prodigal son. Nothing will um, sort of invite us to sort of sit up straighter and to start acting like a like a grown up and to pitch in than than to have been forgiven for some for something we know we don't really deserve the mercy. And on top of it, it's not a grudging mercy. It's not a grudging forgiveness. It's like, okay, you can come sit at the table, but you sit at the very, very bottom of the table and don't say anything either. But no, the father in the parable, the prodigal son, it's not only are you welcome back, but here you sit at the head of the table. Oh, we're so thrilled you're here. Here, put on a, put on a lovely pair of sandals. It's the lavishing of of the love, which you feel on some level because you now have eyes just to sort of see the beauty of the world. I mean, you begin to see, oh, the day is just a, a love letter. I mean, if you're in the right mood, the, look how green the leaves are and all of that. Um, but so, yes, it's, a, it's the unmerited mercy and the warm welcome uh, that I felt from, from the world, that there was a place for me. And that is the deepest fear always had been of my heart, deep abandonment wound of I'm going to fall through the cracks. I'm not really welcome. I'm not good enough. 
so yes, that was, you're absolutely right. The, the voice. And, um, and then you want to know more about that, that quote voice. And, and I looked around for, for someone to thank. I didn't want to thank, um, an idea or an abstraction or a philosophy. I wanted a person. And, and again, Christ answers all the deepest desires of the human heart. Um, we want, we are flesh and blood. We want something that is flesh and blood, a person, I think, to thank, to worship, to walk with. And um, so I began what turned into several years, sir. Got, got sober, got married, moved to Los Angeles, passed through California bar, began working as a, as I said, a lawyer in Beverly Hills. And, and, um, and I'm seeking and start going around to churches, weirdly had this, to me, bizarre urge to worship. I did not travel in circles that were, my friends were not religious folk. Most, all the Catholics I knew uh, who'd gone to Catholic school as a kid hated, hated the church. And, um, you know, I grew up as a, as a good kind of 60s, 70s liberal Democrat, and uh, which used to be, I think more of what the church was, but anyway, um, yeah, like the Catholic church was not somewhere that was in my sights. Um, but I, I just went on this, this search that consisted of a lot of prayer, a lot of reading, uh, and, and the prayer, and this is part of the point of my book. I mean, prayer for me has never been, Oh, give me that. Give me this. Um, it has always been, I somehow intuitively understood, it's, uh, someone once asked St. Therese of Lisieux what she said to Jesus when she prayed, and she thought for a minute and said, I don't say much of anything, I just love him. And um, I absolutely respond to that. Uh, you know, prayer for me has always has been just, let me be close to the way, the truth, the life to the, the center of existence and please guide me because I'm so fallen and out for myself and broken and blind to myself and all of that. Um, but I really sincerely wanted to do the right thing to, to do what I was put here for, which I knew was not being a lawyer. And, um, and another, huge part of my story is that I did know what I was put here for, which was to write. And that was, that was a call, like a literal call of my heart. Um, almost a voice that I could hear the call to, uh, at the age of 40, by the way, for making money for the first time in my life, this call that had been deep in my heart since I was a very young girl, but that I was, I think even the drinking was in a way an effort to just quash it because I didn't, it was a dangerous call. I didn't know what it would mean or what it would look like um, that perhaps I would have to live in sort of abject poverty my whole life. I mean, I never expected to make any money uh, doing it and um, was of course terrified of being a failure, all the things that, that every human being is afraid of. And again, our culture is, uh, uh, Oh, I guess every culture, right. We hate loser, loser. I mean, we're so afraid of being ridiculed and failing. So I had all that, but I ended up quitting the job anyway. 
starting to write and coming into the church at almost the same time, which was in the uh, sort of mid-90s. Well, and so you talk about the, and, the, the effect that your family had on you, and, and, and you, you say that you, you, you weren't in an alcoholic family, but you were in a family that was affected by alcoholism. You mentioned that it was almost like your mother's milk. Um, and then you talked just a moment ago about how our culture itself sort of takes this deepest dream that you had, this dream to write, and it seemed to pile on you all these things that said, you're going to fail, you're going to be a loser, you're, you're not going to do it right, people are going to ridicule you. Um, what is it about our culture that, that allows for families and allows for dreams to be so damaged you know, by even the, 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 the smallest revelation. It sounds like in your family, um, the, the, uh, the history that was there affected you. It sounds like just living in our American culture affected you. And it took you until you were 40 to get to the point where you could actually do the thing that you wanted to do. Right. Well, partly, in large part, that was because for 20 years I was on a bar stool. Mm. So I was in no shape. In no shape, just logistically. I mean, I could barely sit up straight. So, um, and I will, I will say about. I mean, the thing about my family—they, in many ways, um, formed me to be a writer, absolutely, and they supported my being a writer. But the, I think the thing about my family—it was like our. There was a lot of financial fear in our family. My father was a bricklayer, eight kids. Can you imagine? Um, but in those days, I mean, he had, a, we had our own house. He built our house for us. There was a lot of financial fear and, um, and a lot of sort of, oh, don't make a mistake and don't make a fool of yourself. You know, it was a, it was a kind of don't bring shame. Um, I mean, no one said this out loud and maybe it was just the way I interpreted it with my own whacked out psyche, but this, um, sort of stay small, don't reach too high because you're going to get the world is going to slam you down. Um, so there was a little bit of that. And, um, and I don't want to, I don't want to blame my culture. I mean, the name, another name for Satan, as we know, is the accuser. And I think that is what is more because I do, I truly feel our lives are this battleground between sort of death and life, good and evil, however you want to put it. Um, are you going to be a writer? Are you going to, are you going to do the job that brings you alive and that is scary? Or are you going to stay in the safe, dead job your whole life? And the Gospels are all about that. Let the dead bury their dead. You want to be one of the dead? I hope, I hope not. I hope you're going to want to come alive, but, if, but that's your choice. And uh, so I think that's more, more than the culture of the family. It, it's an existential, they're existential religious questions. Um, but yeah, I was terrified. I mean, it's making money. I'd been a drunk all my life, spending all the money I made as a waitress in the bars. I'm working as a lawyer. I'm making money for the first time in my life. I've benefits for the first time in my life. And, um, and I knew, uh, if I'm, if I were to write, I can't both be a lawyer and write. I'm going to have to choose. It takes too much time and heart. So, um, I had to face that. Uh, and I have a lot of you know, I'm built to be financially fearful. And so I had a lot of that. And it's another reason I know God was so with me because even with my fear, I was somehow able to, um, I just thought I cannot die and not have tried at least to write. I can't, that will be really a sin. 
Uh, that's how I felt about it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Heather King about her book, Holy Desperation, Praying as if Your Life Depends on It. You can find out more about King and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, listeners. I just wanted to let you know about a new podcast that I'm launching with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum. It's called Divides Aside, and it's science and faith in conversation. This podcast is about laying down differences and finding new ways to understand each other. In these deeply personal conversations, me and Emily talk about our ways of seeing the world and why they they so often come into conflict and why we so often disagree. But as the episodes unfold, suspicion gives way to a growing friendship. Listeners get a chance to glimpse the difficulties and rewards that come when we put our divides aside. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Divides Aside and on Facebook.com, also at Divides Aside. Please do listen in. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to learn how to do this better. And we'd love to share this conversation with you. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Heather King, author of Holy Desperation, Praying as if Your Life Depends on It. On the show a little while ago, a woman by the name of Nina Paley, and she's a, she's a filmmaker and a cartoonist, and there was a point where she wanted to really just invest in working on this one big project and she she literally bought herself a ring and she wedded herself to the project and it sounds to me like you made a similar decision you said i have to it, i can't write halfway it has to be either i'm writing or i'm abandoning writing and so i love that moment that you just described where you just made the decision to step away and just take take the reins and see where it went Right. And it wasn't so much take the reins. I'd always had the reins. It was surrender the reins. <laughs> mm. We'll talk about that um, surrender because that's an important part of 12 step is this notion of surrender. So how, how did you see that moment of surrender and, and did it fit into what you had been learning about yourself and about your process in, in your, in your walk of recovery? Well, absolutely. And I, and, and let me just say, I love the idea of the wedding yourself to the project. Um, or, I mean, we have the whole, the whole bride of Christ. I mean, this whole, the idea of writing to me as vocation with a capital V. And in fact, not only did I give up the job, I also ended up getting divorced. Um, several years later, uh, I had, converted we'd been married by justice of the peace but that's a valid marriage in the church and um so uh i had the marriage annulled afterward but um it did have a anyway i won't go into that except to say i did realize 
at some point after I'd written for several years, this, I can, I'm a one vocation person and I can't have two. I can't, not only could I not have being a lawyer and a writer, I couldn't have being a spouse and a writer. And that was another whole agonizing process that I write about in, um, mostly in my book, uh, Stripped, which is about a little bout with cancer I had. But anyway, the surrender, well, and this is, this is, um, two is straight gospels 101 that we surrender ourselves we die to our egos to our will to our plan for ourselves um i mean i think that's another way of uh the death we die to ourselves in order to be born anew in order to be made into something new and that's what the surrender consists in um, when I got sober, I surrendered. I died to my identity as an alcoholic. I mean, my identity lay in alcoholism. That is literally what I was. What do you do? I drank. Um, it absolutely ruled every part of my existence. And um, so that was one leap, one huge surrender to say, I don't even know what my life would look like. I cannot imagine what it'd be like sober. And then I couldn't imagine what my life would be like as a writer, literally, how do you spend your time and how many hours a day do you write and where do you write and what does that look like? And, uh, and, and I had no, um, neither as a Catholic nor as a writer, I interestingly had no um, mentor. I didn't know any practicing Catholics when I came into the church and I didn't have any, um, I guess I had, I took a couple of writing classes, so it's not like I didn't know other people wrote, but I didn't, I didn't have someone ever to cheer me on to validate my, my hard work really for a decade before I got um, in complete obscurity and relative poverty before I got a book published. Um, And, and, but I had, Christ. I had the church. I had the gospels. I had recovery. I mean, it found my spiritual ground. And so those things absolutely sustained me. I mean, and they've continued to, because just because you get a book published, even though it's a huge, huge thing and a landmark, but, um, you know, your life doesn't actually change at all. And, um, and so those things have, um, have continued to sustain me and the surrenders ongoing and daily many many times a day um i was just listening to a tape by a dear friend of mine father terry monsignor terry ritchie and he was talking about the lord's prayer and he said the lord's prayer is nothing any of us would have come up with on our own he said like two-thirds of it is about thy will (laughs) thy will be done hallowed be thy name we're we tend to be all about us, even in prayer or especially in prayer. Um, help me with my project. Help, help this thing come true. Help me to, you know, we have an idea of how, how we want to look and how we want it to happen. And uh, apparently um, that's not, the purpose of prayer is not for us to sway God, who is clearly utterly unswayable by us. It's to open ourselves to be changed by him. Well, in talking about prayer in the book, you you mention and talk about so many different types of prayer. You 
there's there's one whole middle section of the book where you just talk about all the different types and and you talk about lexio divina you talk about you talk about the the praying of the 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 the, the office of the hours you talk about the Jesus prayer and you you sort of go through these these prayers that are sort of more formal and then you you move to the more personal and as i was reading this it reminded me of something that i've heard attributed to Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, where he says the most simple, the most basic prayer is just to say, thank you, God. And and what I what I love about this book is that you're just giving us, it's like you're laying out the entire smorgasbord. You're just saying, here's all the things that you can sample from, all the ways that you can dip your toe into prayer in a big way, in a small way. But when we talk about prayer, when we talk about this practice, um, one of the things that also struck me is how how it's similar in some ways to the rhythms of recovery. Uh, I, I think about the, the phrase, keep coming back, it works if you work it. And I, I just think about that in relationship to the way that you're describing prayer. Keep trying to come back to this place that is centered in God. Keep trying to come back to this place that is reflective of the will of God and, and the, the love of Christ, and it will work if you work it. Yes, I think that's absolutely um because what else what else is there right the sort of um, the discipline the perseverance the i'm going to keep showing up to this particular um time and place every day because that's my policy sort of out of obedience that's how i write i write really in the deepest sense out of obedience because i know that is what i was put here to do so i don't wait until i'm inspired or till i'm feeling super perky until I have annoying ideas coursing through my head. I go to my desk each day, even if I'm exhausted, even if I'm angry. And it's the same, very much the same, I think, with prayer. I mean, and that's, and, and that prayer, that kind of prayer we're talking about where you, you show up for me in the morning, I'm a big morning person, whatever, whenever you get up, I think first thing to start your day is um, really a very sound practice. I don't know anyone who would sort of argue with it. I'm sure you can be a deep person of prayer without that or doing it at a different time. I don't know, but that's what's, all I can say is what's worked for me. And so it's that, you know, that, and that's when I pray the office every morning. And I read that day's um, liturgy. I often go to daily mass, uh, sometimes in the morning, sometimes later in the day. But, but the point is to start with the kind of the word of God and to and when you pray the divine office, you're praying with the whole church. Again, the point being, prayer, the purpose of prayer is not our, it's not my spiritual excellence. It's to give my whole body and blood, my whole self to the world, to unite myself with the world, um, the church, of course, and the world at large beyond that. And um, so I think that those kind of prayers that have words in them are, are kind of an entree. Um, but then there's the prayer uh, after after the words that I also sort of will sit quietly for a while in the morning. And then that goes on, I think, more. That's the prayer for me that is more through the day when everything becomes a part of the prayer. Um, I think the more you pray, the more you see your whole life uh Okay, you're doing your bills. Okay, I'm doing my bills for all the people who don't have the money to do their bills. I'm doing the bills for people who are too sick. In other words, we eat for everybody. There's a beautiful 
um, you know, when we're eating breakfast, it's for everyone. There's a beautiful reflection in Magnificat today, actually, from John, Blessed John of Weisbroke, I think it's pronounced, died 1381. And he says, Christ never took any, he says, his sacraments and his gifts are common to all. Christ never took any food or drink, nor anything that his body needed, without intending by it the common good of all those who shall be saved, even unto the last day. He ate and drank for our sake. He lived and he died for our sake. His pains and his sorrows and his miseries were of his own and for him only. But the fruits and the profit which came forth from them are common to all. And I think that's what prayer gives us, this richness and fullness to our life, this kind of ability to be attentive and to observe and to be present. And then our whole life becomes or can become a form of giving, of sacrifice, if you want, um, but also at the same time, of course, of receiving. And so it's utterly nourishing and life-giving. Um, and this, of course, I want to emphasize, is under the best of circumstances, or I should say when I'm in the best spiritual shape, which, of course, is not all the time. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Heather King about her book, Holy Desperation, Praying as if Your Life Depends on It. We'll be back in a moment. Earlier in the program, we talked about advertising, but there are ways to support things not seen even if you don't have anything to sell. I just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters. Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you'd like to know more about the show, please go to our website at thingsnotseenradio.com. We're speaking today with Heather King about her book, Holy Desperation, Praying as if Your Life Depends on It. The book is an honest look at her many years as an alcoholic and drug addict, but she also talks about her conversion to Catholicism and the ways in which prayer and spirituality have become central to both her recovery and her daily living. One of the things that 12-step encourages is having a sponsor and sponsoring someone else. It's a, it's, a, it's a notion of you are involved not just in your own recovery, your own individual action, but you're involved also in, in an action that, that by necessity in, implicates other people. 
And what I also love about the notion of getting up in the morning and praying the office or going to Mass is, again, you're involved in an activity, and it's it's you that's doing it, but there's so many other people that you can point to and say, and while I'm praying, these other people are praying. And then you've just, you, and then you've just flipped it outward and said, when I'm doing this action, when I'm paying my bills, when I'm eating my breakfast, I'm trying to include spiritually and mentally all of the other people in the world that need nourishment, all the other people in the world that need daily sustenance. I, I love the way that you're weaving this together where it's, it's an individual recovery, but I'm also hearing that your individual recovery is, is interleaved and dependent and interdependent on all these other people finding their authenticity, finding their recovery as well. I, I just love that image so much. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the mystical body, and um, and I think part of prayer is, of course, I need it. I need prayer. I need the body and blood of Christ. I need the Word of the liturgy to just nourish me and sustain me, so that I'm not left with my because left to my own devices. Sooner or later, I'm in resentment. I'm comparing. I'm judging. I'm developing petty annoyances but and i also can't transmit something i haven't got and so i think the the spontaneous desire of the human heart when it comes alive of course we want to share it i mean when when a couple gets married and has a kid it's not oh wow this kid is going to cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars and mean sleepless night it's i mean that's not where it's just oh of course course there's nothing we'd rather do than bring new life into the world and and by the same token if you have any inkling of of close to good news there's you just it's like the woman at the well you want to rush back to town and say people look i don't have to act like i used to anymore i've somehow been freed of the bondage of self at least a little and let me share that with you and that's christ saying spread Okay, I'm. I've got to leave you now. I'm going to ascend. You all spread the gospels to the end of the earth, and that is our mandate, all of us. And so um, you got to give it away to keep it. Um, I mean, that's that's a a deep spiritual principle that is completely, uh, you know, surely people other than than Christians, for instance, have, or people in recovery have figured that out. But it is totally God's economy. In the giving, you'll receive, and the whole thing will flow on and people will be gathered up more people will sort of follow along so it's uh yeah and it's very very exciting and just beautiful when you see that happen when you see other people maybe that you may have um just sat with and accompanied and you start to see them come awake a little bit either in sobriety or um or in the church um i'm actually going to my first ordination at the beginning of June, a dear friend of mine, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, who um, got sober and converted and is now being ordained a Catholic priest. What, uh, what a joy. Well, and, and so as, we, as we're bringing the conversation to a close, one of the things that has just been so apparent to me throughout this, I, I normally ask my guests sort of what keeps you hopeful but uh, it's clear to me that that you are living in an abundant hope, and you're very vocal about that. And so just where do you see God's love manifesting in your life today? Oh, wow. Oh, just everywhere, from 
the apartment I live in, I have installed, this is a whole episode of my life, a native garden in the back that has actually drawn many of the people in my building together into conversation, into some rough kind of community. You know, people write to me and they want stuff or they want to share stuff or they want to give me stuff. I mean, in a bizarre way, it's almost like, I mean, I know this, no, I literally almost feel like a a priest in a way, you know, like people almost confess to me or something. I can't describe it. It's just, it's nothing I would have certainly would never have angled for and probably wouldn't have wanted. I'm a total introvert. And my fondest wish is always to be left alone so that I can read and watch old Japanese movies or whatever. Um, But but I have this life where people come somehow in some weird way or another. And then I, of course, I have my whole sober thing with lots of people that I sort of help guide through. I have people who help guide me through. And that's a whole life that is getting together at certain times during the week. It's sometimes going out for lunch. It's all this, this rough participation in a way that is a huge gift for me. Um, but does require all my, everything of me. And meanwhile, I'm a writer. I mean, I have a weekly arts and culture column. I have a monthly column in Magnificat. I have the book out there, so I'm doing lots of interviews. So it's, uh, and I got a weed. I got to weed that garden. <laughs> so so there's, <laughs> there's a lot um, of stuff. But yeah, that's, so who could not have hope? You know, the priest at Sunday Mass said, He's one of these kind of old school priests. I love him. He's kind of scoldy. He can get a little scold. But he said, he said, being a priest is an adventure. You're never alone. You, you, you don't have to watch soap operas because you hear it in the confessional and you're always being called to some new place. And I really identified with him. Heather King, I have so enjoyed our conversation. Your, your book, Holy Desperation, uh, I needed to read this book and it, it hit me at a, at a really good time. And just hearing how you have you have both worked your recovery, but also the ways in which you have you've given yourself to writing and you've given yourself to this thing that you've admitted is is not something that you're comfortable with, sort of being there and being present for other people. It's an inspiration to me. And I just want to I just want to say thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you, David, so, so much for having me and for letting me um, natter on. I really appreciate it. We've been speaking today with Heather King about her book, Holy Desperation, Praying as If Your Life Depends on It, from Loyola Press. King is a survivor of years of hard living. Her first prayer of desperation was set on her knees while she was strung out and half drunk. Her recovery remains the central fact of her existence. She became a Catholic 20 years ago and says that the paradigm of the crucifixion and resurrection and the parable of the prodigal son all made perfect sense to her. You can find out more about her book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. David Edison engineered the show, and David Dahl did the editing. 
Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badnock. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.